Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So last week, we took a look at uh, uh, the story of Balaam, about three different chapters actually. And uh, Balaam uh, was a prophet, not necessarily a prophet of the Lord, although he did have some kind of a relationship with the Lord, we found out as we went through those chapters. And uh, anyways, he got hired by Balak to curse uh, the Jewish people, the children of Israel, and uh, try as they might and try as Balaam wanted to, um, you know, the Lord wouldn't allow the children of Israel to be cursed. And so we looked at that entire story last week, and uh, at the end of... Uh, uh, of that, of those chapters, Balaam basically leaves, at least as far as we know. Verse 25 of, of chapter 24 says, So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. But what we find out in Scripture is that's not the end of the story for Balaam. We're going to be uh, talking about him again in uh, this chapter, in chapter 25. So beginning with verse 1, it says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. The story of Balaam is not finished. We'll find out later when we get to chapter 31 that Balaam gave counsel to Balak. In fact, in the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus is speaking to the church of Pergamos or Pergamum, and he says this in Revelation 2.14, he says, But I have a few things against you, speaking to that church, because you, have, uh, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to uh, put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So what we find out in Scripture is it wasn't the end of the story when Balaam couldn't curse the children of Israel because God wouldn't let him. Um, he evidently, according to Scripture, spoke to Balak and said, yeah, I, we can't curse them, but here's how you can trip them up. Here's how you can get them basically to curse themselves. What was the stumbling block? It was the women of Moab. They, uh, they worshiped Baal. And they invited the, the they kind of hung out around the, the around the children of Israel. And uh, the worship of Baal involved sexual immorality. And so their sin was both sexual immorality, but also spiritual adultery, because they partake in the idolatrous, uh, idolatrous feasts uh, and celebrations that were also sex sexually immoral. The children of Israel, they couldn't be cursed, but they could curse themselves. And Balak basically was taught by Balaam how to trip them up through, uh, through, this, uh, through the women of Moab. And so there in verse 4, the Lord says, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. A very public 
punishment. Hang up the leaders out in the front of everybody. The punishment was to be public because, and everybody was to see the results of the sin of the leaders. Uh, why? Well, you know, Paul talks about uh, leaders in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. He says this, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those, and he's speaking about the elders, who are sinning, in other words, it's been proven. It's not just an accusation. It's been proven, and it's ongoing. They're sinning. He says, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Why does it need to be public like that? Well, because of the influence of leaders on those that follow them. And so God says, take these leaders, the ones that are leading the rest of their tribes, and hang them. And so Moses there in verse 5 said uh, to the judges of Israel, he said, every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. So each judge or each leader that wasn't involved in that sexual immorality and that the idolatrous worship was to execute the offenders under his authority. Verse 6, and indeed one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meetings. You can just sense, I mean, they're, they're just, their hearts are broken over what's going on. Verse 7, now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. So this brazen act, it's done f f flagrantly, right? Right in the front of Moses, in front of the leaders, in front of the entire congregation. This person doesn't care. And Phineas. He's the grandson of Aaron, the high priest. He just, he just, he gets up, he chases after the couple, and he runs them through with a javelin. Uh, the, way the, the way it's read, it almost sounds like he killed them probably right in the middle of their, what they were doing in, in the very act. But Phineas's immediate action, what did it do? It stopped the plague, but not before 24,000 of the men died. Paul relates to this story in 1 Corinthians 10 when he's warning the Corinthian church to avoid sexual immorality. And he says in verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And he's referring back to this story. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Now, some people say, wait a minute. Paul said 23,000 died. And here it says 24,000. Is that a discrepancy? Well, no, because in numbers here, it doesn't say how many in one day, but in Paul's it says in one day 23,000. So presumably the other 1,000 died in total. So verse 10 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. 
And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Selu, a leader of a father's house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, not Bill, Cosby, <laughs> the daughter of Zur. He was head of the people of a father's house in Midian. So we're actually told the names of these two offenders. The Jewish person, the guy from the tribe of Simeon, is named Zimri. And it says that he was a son of a leader in Simeon. <clears throat> and then we're told the name of the, the, the woman, Cosby, and she was the daughter of Zur. Now, in Numbers chapter 31, verse 8, we find out that Zur is one of five Midianite kings. So they're both, you know, they're, they're influential. They're, they're, at least their, their parents are, their fathers are influential. And so you would think that maybe there's people who say, well, you know, we've got to take it easy. There could be repercussions. Well, Phineas didn't care about that. Phineas was zealous with the Lord's zeal. And the Lord blessed him and rewarded him for that. What does it mean to be zealous with the Lord's zeal? You know, we know people that are zealous about all kinds of things, right? Zealous about, you name it, uh, whatever the people are zealous about. But Phineas is zealous with the Lord's zeal, and there is a difference. In other words, Phineas was passionate about the things that God is passionate about. That's a challenge for us, man. Do I, am I passionate about what God's passionate about? Or am I just passionate about whatever I think I should be passionate about? There's a big difference here. Paul had that same zeal for the Lord as well. He speaks to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present to you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We read in scriptures, Paul wept over the churches. He prayed. His heart was just with all of the churches that he started. He had such a care for them that he had God's jealousy, which is a good jealousy. It's a jealousy for them, not a jealousy of them. You know, we look at this story and we go, wow, you know, Balak and the, the Midianite women, you know, they tripped up the children of Israel. And man, this is just like a picture of spiritual warfare. Well, you know what? Spiritual warfare is a reality for the believer. Because Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. There is a spiritual warfare going on. There's a spiritual battle taking place. But more frequently, the battle doesn't necessarily take place on the outside from the external coming towards us, but on the inside, our flesh, is in a war against our spirit if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 5:17 for the flesh excuse me for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. There's a battle going on within each one of us. And when it comes to the sins of the flesh, man, the lesson for you and I is to be like Phineas. Phineas took action immediately. We're to take action against the sins of the flesh. 
We're to run the javelin through and kill whatever that sinful activity is, whatever that sinful attitude is, whatever that sinful habit we have, that tendency to do things, those things, man, we need to put them to death. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So there's that battle. We're to, we're to be like Phineas. You know, sometimes as believers, there's an area in our lives, we know it's sin, but we don't really hate the sin enough to act against it. Phineas hated it. He acted against it. But sometimes we don't. Well, if you're in that kind of a situation, let me ask you there, let me encourage you in this. Ask the Lord to give you his zeal. Ask him to make you passionate about what he's passionate about, to hate what he hates and to love what he loves. Ask him to change your heart with regard to that sin. Because that's the only way you're going to put it to death. So Phineas, and I told you earlier, he was the grandson of Aaron, the high priest. His one act that he did, that one single thing that he did, it stopped the plague for many. I mean, already 24,000 had perished, but he had stopped the plague because it would have continued going through the children of Israel. And it resulted in his descendants having a perpetual priesthood. And so in that respect, Phineas is really a picture of Jesus Christ, our high priest. Because Jesus, he did one act of obedience and it resulted in the salvation of many. The only difference is that Jesus himself was pierced for our sins. Verse 16, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and attack them for they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. The Lord says, harass the Midianites because they harassed you. That word harass, it's a verb and it means to be an enemy an adversary, an oppressor, a rival. It means to oppose persons, to fight against them, to be hostile toward them. The Lord says, man, be hostile towards the Midianites because they were hostile towards you. For you and I, the, the, the lesson here is don't tolerate sin in your life. Don't be at peace with the schemes of the enemy because those schemes of the enemy, they're meant to destroy you. And so we are not to have, we're to take no prisoners when it comes to that sin. Those schemes of the enemy are meant to destroy you. They're meant to destroy your marriage and they're meant to destroy your family. And we need to be hostile towards those areas in our life. So we get to chapter 26. The plague has stopped, right? Verse 26 or chapter 26, verse one. And it came to pass after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above by their father's houses, all who are able to go to war in Israel. So Moses and Eleazar, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and above, just as the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt. We'll stop right there. 
These are those that survived the plague. They, they weren't killed in the plague. These are the children of the generation that died in the wilderness. And, uh, and so these are the ones that are now going in to take possession. Very shortly, they'll be taking possession of the promised land. This census was to enumerate the tribes to find out how big each one of the tribes were because each tribe would receive a portion of land, a portion of their inheritance of the promised land based on the size of their tribes. A larger tribe would have larger property. A smaller tribe would have less property. And then we'll find out a little bit later, um, the, so the, the size of the land was based on the tribes, but the actual location of those lands was drawn by lot. Um, it was, you know, how they drew straws or however they did it. I don't, I don't know, probably the Urim and the Thummim. But Proverbs 16.33, sometimes we get kind of concerned. Well, they did it by lot. They gambled. What is the deal? The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I like that. I'm not going to go through and read each name of the tribes here. And if, I encourage you, if you want to go through and read it, uh, please do. Um, not right at the moment, but we're going to read through. I, 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 we're going to kind of skip down. But I do want to draw out a few names because there's some groups of people that are mentioned uh, in particular along through these tribes. And I'm, so I'm going to try to draw our attention to them. The first one is in verse 9. Dathan and Abiram along with Korah in verse 10, it says that they became a sign. And if you'll recall, Dathan and Abiram, they were from the tribe of Reuben. They were the tribe of Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. The firstborn would have had all the rights of the firstborn, typically. They would have had a double portion of the inheritance. They would have had, uh, you know, the double portion of, of just about everything being the firstborn. And so Reuben was that firstborn, but because of some sin that he committed in his life, he, was not, he didn't get the right of the, of the firstborn. It went to Judah. Well, so being descended from Reuben, they deserved, Reuben, the leaders of Reuben deserved to lead Israel, and yet they didn't. Well, camped right next to the family uh, of the tribes of Reuben was, the, you know, the, the Levites were in different portions, depending on where you're, which family you were from. You were on one side of the, of the tabernacle or, or the other. And the side that Korah's family was on was, happened to be just camped right next to Reuben's tents, the tents of Reuben. And so what probably started as some murmuring some complaining secretly among one another because they're in close proximity to each other. Eventually it led to open rebellion for which they were judged. And that's these two guys, Dathan and Abiram. And then Korah in chapter, uh, verses 10 and 11, Korah and his children are mentioned in particular. What's interesting about that is Korah's children did not die we're told right here in verse 11. You recall that because of the rebellion, the Lord uh, told, uh, told Moses, separate everything from Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their families, get away from them, and then the ground opened up and, and swallowed up those, those, those people whole. And, uh, but here we're told in verse 11 that Korah's children didn't die. In fact, 
if you go to the book of Psalms, and you know, there's some Psalms that, uh, uh, that are very well known worship songs or hymns that people know. Um, most of them are, not most of them, but a lot of them are penned by the children of Korah, the sons of Korah. I'll give you a few examples. This is one that you guys probably know, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my, uh, so my soul pants for you, O God. That, that's written by the sons of Korah. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's a good, that's a good one to memorize, you know, to, just to remember that. Psalm 47, oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. That's actually, I can remember a, a worship song that went along that way. Uh, I can have my wife sing it for us. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. That's just a sampling. There are many more that the sons of Korah wrote. I, I, I'm encouraged by that because Korah led a rebellion. He was killed for it in the wilderness, but his sons didn't bear that punishment. And I like that because this passage, among others, for me personally, they reinforce my disbelief in what's known as generational curses and deliverance ministries. I have a real hard time with them, and I'm going to explain why. First of all, the, the sons of Korah, they weren't cursed like Korah was. But, you know, I'm, I'm going through the Old Testament right now, my own studies, and I just finished Second Chronicles, working my way through. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when you read about the kings of Judah. Uh, it's amazing. You read their history. You know, one was really good, one was really bad. Manasseh was one of the later kings of Judah. He was very evil. But towards the end of his reign, he repented and he got rid of all the idolatry and everything and, uh, that was going on in the land. And, uh, and then, his, then he died. And then his son, Ammon, took the throne of, uh, you know, in his place. And we find out in Second Chronicles that Ammon was just pure evil. He built up all the idolatrous stuff that, that his father had, had torn down. And he was so evil that the people rejoiced when he died. That's pretty bad. Well, he had a son, and his son was Josiah. And Josiah, the Bible says, did, right, uh, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And you find out he was a great king. He loved the Lord his entire life. And so for what's, it's just interesting to me, you know, it doesn't, because your father was, had this, whatever it is, doesn't mean that you have to have that. And sometimes people teach that, and, and, and I disagree with that. I look at passages like Manasseh, Ammon, and Josiah. Um, I look at my own, my wife's family. You know, in her family, there's, you know, there are things that, uh, you know, you would expect to see in, in my wife, Teresa, but you don't. Why? Because God changed her. God changed her. That cycle was broken, and, and sometimes I say, why are you so different from them? And, and she says, man, it's the Lord. It's, it's, it's just the Lord, what he did. Colossians 2, verses 8 and 10, Paul says this, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You're complete in Jesus. 
Verse 15 of that same chapter talks about Jesus. He, he's disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. So I take issue with people that say that the transforming power of Jesus Christ in a person's life is not enough, that they need something else in addition to what Jesus Christ can do in a person's life. I have a hard time with that personally. And again, that's my personal feeling. I, I think it's based on scripture. Um, but that's what I see in Korah and his children. Then we get down to verse 19. And we're, there were mentioned uh, Ur and Onan, who were two of the sons of Judah. It says that they died in the land of Canaan. When we go back and we read about Ur and Onan, Ur was the older brother, the oldest brother. And the Bible says he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. We don't know what he was wicked, but it apparently was wicked enough to that the Lord killed him. And then his younger brother Onan was supposed to take on, uh, take Tamar, who was, who was Ur's wife, in what's known as the Leverite marriage. And basically what it was, was he was to take his brother's wife uh, as a wife, raise up a son for her so that Ur's inheritance would be passed down through, uh, through the son. But we find out in scripture that although Onan knew that that's what he was supposed to do, it was expected, he refused to do it. And so he also was killed by the Lord. James says this in chapter 4, verse 17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So Onan knew what he was supposed to do, and he refused to do it. And so he's singled out here in this, in this genealogy he's mentioned. And then we get to verse 33, and it talks about Zelophehad, or Zelophehad, I think I said it the same way, and his daughters. I'm not going to talk about that right now because chapter 27, we'll deal with that here shortly. But go down to verse 51 of chapter 26. We get down you know, counting all the different tribes and the different names. We get down to verse 51. It says, these are those who were numbered of the children of Israel, 601,730. 600, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, to these the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance and to a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. So this is the second census of the children of Israel. The first one, we read about it in Numbers chapter 1, and that occurred about 38 years prior to this. The size of the tribal inheritance would be based on the tribe size entering the land of Canaan. Not when they were first counted, but now after going through the wilderness and that entire generation died and those 24,000 uh, were killed in the plague. Those that remain, the survivors, they're the ones that are going to go into the, tr into the, uh, to the uh, promised land. And so they needed to know how many for each tribe so that they could figure out how much, how much size they needed for land. 
So in the first census, overall, the children of Israel numbered, of these men of this age group, 603,500. And now here we get to the end of this story here in, in uh, Numbers 26, and they end with 601,730. So there was a slight loss overall. But what we find out as you read through this, and if you, if you, get, you can get your pen out and write down you know, the, the tribe, the size of the tribe beginning and the size of the tribe at the end, uh, some of the tribes increased and some of them decreased. The beginning in Numbers chapter 1, Manasseh was the smallest tribe. They numbered, well, I don't have the number in front of them, but they had the largest gain here after 38 years they had about a 64% gain. That's, that's a huge, that's a huge size difference. And we're not really told why Manasseh grew the way it did. But Simeon, this is interesting, Simeon, 38 years earlier, was the largest tribe. And now they're the smallest. They suffered a 63% loss in the size of their tribe. And what I think is interesting is Zimri, who's named one of the men that, that was killed there, that Phineas killed, he was of the tribe of Simeon. In fact, he was the son of a leader. And so I kind of wonder if there's a correlation. Maybe a lot of the Simeonites were involved in this, this idolatry that was taking place here. I'm not, I mean, we don't know, but kind of makes you wonder. But what it does remind me of overall is the parable of the talents. You know, some were given a small, you know, a, a, you know one talent, some were given more, and it, their rewards was based on what they did with what they were given. And so for you and I, the, the, the lesson I think is clear. Are you faithful with what the Lord has given you, great or small? Whatever we've been given, are we faithful to what the Lord has given us? And so verse 57, and these are those who were numbered of the Levites according to their families. Now you'll notice that the Levites were not counted because these were men that were able to go to war prior. Now, and the Levites didn't receive inheritance, you know, tribal land. They just received cities uh, and they were spread out throughout uh, the, the nation of Israel. They would be spread out throughout the promised land, but they are still counted for their service. And so verse 57, these are those who were numbered of the Levites according to their families. Of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites. Of Kohath, the family of the Kohathites. Of Merari, the family of the Merarites. These are the families of the Levites. The family of the Libnites, the family of the Hebronites, the family of the Malites, the family of the Mushites, the family of the Korathites. And Kohath begot Amran. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And to Amram, she bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. To Aaron were born Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu died when they offered profane fire before the Lord. So now we get another couple people that were singled out here. The Nadab and Abihu, the two elder sons of Aaron. It says that they died because they offered profane fire before the Lord. What was profane fire? It was fire that was not kindled in the altar of burnt offering. The altar of burnt offering, the fire there was associated with the atoning atonement sacrifices and the redeeming work of sacrifice. And they took fire from another source. And 
uh, scriptures also seems to indicate that uh, these two guys, um, Nadab and Abihu, they may have even been inebriated, in other words, drunk at the time. It's possible. Um, scriptures kind of indicates it a little bit. But what does it mean, offering profane fire? You know, for us, I think it's a warning, especially to those who are involved in ministry. Because, you know, the question is, are we ministering, you know, uh, with our own fire? In other words, are we ministering out of a sense of meeting my own needs? Do I need recognition? And so that's why I'm serving. Uh, do I need to have control? I, you know, I'm a control freak, and so I've got to be in charge, you know, and so I need, I need to minister in that regard. Or maybe I just want to feel good about myself, so I've got to be involved in ministry. That's ministering from our own resources. The difference is just responding and wanting to minister based on what Christ done for us. And Lord Jesus, you gave your life for me, man. I just want to serve you in some capacity. I want to, I want to, I want to give back to you. There, there's a difference there. So I think that's what the lesson is as far as offering profane fire. Verse 63. Well, actually, I don't think I finished verse 62. Uh, or verse 62, let's go back. <laughs> now those who were numbered of them were 23,000, every male from a month old and above, for they were not numbered among the children of Israel because there was no inheritance given to them among the children of Israel. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest who numbered the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. But among them, but among these, there was not a man who, was, who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, or said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. So there was not left a man of them except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. The last two people that are mentioned here in groups here. So basically what that is saying is, these numbers, none of them were of that older generation. They all died in the wilderness. Rebellion, sin, or lack of faith. And so they weren't allowed to enter the promised land. Except for Caleb and Joshua. They're the two that are singled out here. And, you know, all, all these other people so far, minus the daughters of Zelophehad, are they're kind of singled out in a negative way. But Joshua and Caleb are singled out in a positive way. You'll recall that they were uh, uh, two of the 12 spies that were sent in to uh, uh, spy out the, uh, the promised land, Canaan, and bring back a report to the children of Israel and, and bring back some fruit of the land. And they all did. They, they, they spied out the land. They brought fruit. They came back to, to Moses and the children of Israel on the other side of the Jordan. And... Uh, Ten of them said, man, it's, it's a fruitful land and it's great, but man, there's giants in the land and we look like grasshoppers. And, and they basically, they were afraid. They didn't want to go into the promised land. And, uh, and so because of ten people discouraged and turned away an entire nation of the children of Israel from entering the promised land. Discouragement's not a good thing to do, discouraging people. But anyways, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they stand out, and it's really simple. They basically took God at his word. They said, yeah, there is, there's giants in the land, sure. It's going to be a big battle. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. But they said, God's promised to give us the land. Let's go in and take it. Basically, they simply took God at his word and believed. They just had simple faith and obedience. 
and they wanted to encourage the others to trust the Lord as well. And yet the nation was, was they, they didn't. Joshua and Caleb had simple faith, and it was so simple. You look at, man, how did the, why did the Lord bless them, and why are they singled out and everything? It's just simple. They just took God at his word and said, man, I believe it. I'm going to go do what God says. The same is true for you and I. It's really not that complicated to grow in the Lord and to be blessed. Just read his word, apply it, and obey it. Trust and obey, and you'll be blessed. We get to chapter 27. Now we're going to talk about the daughters of Zelophehad. It's kind of interesting. So my wife and I, uh, we went to Israel a number of years ago, and uh, our, our tour went to a place called Elon Moray, and there was a, a rabbi there, um, and he was giving us kind of a cultural kind of a history lesson. We were on top of one hill and across you could see you could see Nablus, uh, or ancient Shechem and stuff. You could he kind of pointed out where Jacob's tomb was and uh, you know all these different things and we were but we were at, at Elam Moray and, and he was pointing north to this tribal land and he kept mentioning these names of these people. I'm like, man, I have never heard of these people before. And then about a, after about a half hour of talking, it finally dawned on me and dawned on our group, I think, because I don't think I was the only one, that he was talking about Zelophehad, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. But the way they pronounce it, I'm like, man, I didn't, it's just totally different. So I am probably slaughtering the, the uh, Hebrew uh, pronunciations of these names, but uh, you're stuck. <laughs> so verse 1, then, the, then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of uh, Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Makur, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. So if you're running out of names for your, for your daughters, there's a couple you can, some biblical names you can use. Uh, verse 2, And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in the company with Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sins. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought the case, brought their case before the Lord. So what they're basically saying is, hey, our dad Zelophehad, he was of that generation that died in the wilderness, but he wasn't part of Korah's rebellion. He was just one of those of the generation that didn't believe about going into the promised land. So he died in his own sin. If he had died in Korah's rebellion, you know, there wouldn't have been a right for him to have any inheritance. But he just died in his own sins. But the problem was he had no sons to pass on the name of the father with respect to uh, tribal inheritance because it always followed the males in the family. And so by faith, they're there asking for a tribal possession that it would have passed, if they had had brothers, it would have passed on to their brothers, but they didn't. And I say by faith they were asking for a tribal possession because in that culture, women didn't have any rights, not like they do today. The women had little to no rights. So this was, a, this was a step of faith for them to go forward and to confront Moses and say, hey, Moses, what about this? 
their father could have been like Joshua and Caleb, just trusting the Lord and saying, yeah, let's go in and do it. But he didn't, apparently, evidently. He could have gone in and prom uh, could have gone in and possessed the promised land, but he didn't because of unbelief. But listen, his daughters, they want to go in. They want to go in. They want to take that land. They're, they're all for it. There's just this one, you know, this one regulation that's kind of holding them back. And so they bring their case to Moses. And I like that, you know. Uh, James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And sometimes we just need to pray. Just say, Lord, what about this? Well, so they come to Moses. Now Moses is, I think he's around 120 years old by this time. I mean, he's been around the block, right? He's seen it all. <laughs> he's got lots of experience. He's got lots of wisdom. And there's another thing he still has, and that's humility. He's, he's, yeah, he knows it all. He's been around the block, but he's still a humble person. Because he doesn't say, well, this is what I think. He goes, man, I don't, I don't know the answer. I'm going to go to the Lord. I think that's such a, that's a cool picture of, of just the humility of Moses. So he doesn't know the answer, so he seeks God. And so God speaks to him. Verse 6, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. You know, when we talk about the promised land, and I've, I've mentioned this a few times, uh, you know, sometimes some of our songs, or we think of the promised land as it's heaven, right? We're getting, we're getting to heaven, and it's a picture of heaven. But if you think about it, the children of Israel going into the promised land, they've got giants to fight. There's some battles to go. When we go to heaven, I hope there's no battles for us to fight. I hope there's no giants to slay. You know, I, 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 I hope and I believe, you know, that, that, that that's all done. So this isn't quite a picture of heaven. What is the promised land a picture of? I think... It's a picture of the deeper, spirit-filled, victorious Christian life that God wants for each one of us. God wants all of us to take possession of the deeper walk with Him. This is what the daughters of Zelophehad. I mean, God wanted the children of Israel to take possession of the land. They didn't because of disbelief. And that's why they had to go for 38 years wandering in the wilderness. God wanted them to take it. And so here's the daughters. They say, we want to take the land. And so what does the Lord say? Verse 7, the daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. God says, yeah, that's, that's right. And then there's this principle established. If the father has no sons, only a daughter, the name of the father and all the rights that go with that name, they pass on to the daughter. When, you, when Jesus, or say, when God says, yeah, that's right, does that mean that like, God's like, man, I didn't think about that possibility? You know, it's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't plan on that, but yeah, I guess let's, let's go for it. You know, is, is that God's attitude? Was it an oversight on God's part? I don't think so. I don't think so. The principle of the name of the father being passed through the daughter is of prophetic significance. You'll recall David, King David. 
You know, he wanted to build a house for the Lord. He wanted to build a temple in the worst way. And so he's, 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 he's pouring out his hand or his heart to Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet doesn't go, well, let me ask the Lord. He goes, man, go for it. It sounds good. Go for it. And Nathan leaves the presence of David and the Lord says, uh, Nathan, <laughs> go back and tell David, uh-uh. I don't want you to build a temple for me. David was a man of war. He had shed much blood. And so God says, but I don't want him to do it. His son will make a temple. He'll build a temple. He'll build a house for me. He says, the Lord tells, and then the Lord spoke to, tells, no, uh, tells Nathan, tell David, yeah, he wants to build me a house. It's good, but he's not going to do it. His son is, but I'm going to build him a house. He says, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. This is speaking about the Messiah. The Messiah is going to descend from you, David. And so for Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah, the, his qualifications to be the Messiah hinge on him being descended from the line of David because of the, the promise here to David. Well, the legal title of the Messiah passed uh, from Joseph, who was Mary's husband, to Jesus. And Joseph had descended from Solomon, King David's son. The problem with the descendants of Solomon prior to the Babylonian captivity, I mentioned a few of them. I mentioned uh, Manasseh and Ammon and Josiah. All those kings, when you get towards the end before, uh, or before the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, conquered Judea, um, those kings got progressively worse. And every once in a while there was one that wasn't like Josiah. But one of the very last kings, it might have been the last one, was King Jeconiah. And he was so wicked that the Lord cursed him. He was Solomon's descendant, and he was Joseph, the, the, the husband of Mary. That was his ancestor. In Jeremiah 22, verse 30, it says, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in, Ju in Judah. In other words, none of the descendants of Jeconiah would ever be on the throne as the king of the Jews. And that's who Joseph had descended from. And so Jesus being the legal son, because, you know, Joseph wasn't the blood, wasn't his blood father, he could have inherited Joseph's land because of being a legal son. Joseph was the father. So there was a legal right to the, to the inheritance of the land. But because of that curse in Jeremiah chapter 22, you know, it's in the, called the blood curse. Jo Joseph wouldn't have been able to sit on the throne and Jesus being, you know, Jesus wasn't of the, of descended from uh, Joseph. So he couldn't have sat on the throne based on Joseph's lineage. But here in chapter 27, this law provides for the inheritance to be passed down through a daughter if there are no sons. And Jesus is lawfully of the house and lineage of David because he inherited the right to be king of kings 
through Mary. Because Mary's bloodline doesn't go through Jeconiah, it goes through Nathan, one of the other sons of David. That's another reason why Christ needed to be born of a virgin and not through Joseph. I don't know if you know who Chuck Missler is. He's with the Lord now, but when he was still alive, he knows probably now for a fact, but back when he was still alive, he believed that Mary's father, who's he's listed in, in Luke chapter 3, his name is Heli or Eli, is actually is what it is. He, he thinks that he had no sons and that this principle came into play uh, in, based on this ruling in Zelophehad's, with Zelophehad's daughters. So it's very fascinating, but that's why I think it has... Uh, prophetic significance because it goes down and affects Jesus being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, again, I, you might say, well, was that, you know, even that blood curse, I mean, did, did God know what he was doing? Because, man, you know, now there's no descendants that can sit on the throne of, of Israel. And then we get this ruling, and was that an oversight on the, on the, side of, on the, on the basis of the Lord? No, not at all. In fact, it goes way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What's fascinating about that verse, the, the, the seed of the woman, it's, it's an impossibility. It's the male that has the seed. And so even in this prophecy back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord God is speaking about the prophecy of Mary the virgin having a child, being the king of kings. So all of this is part of God's wonderful plan of redemption. Again, I want to quote that verse out of Proverbs. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You know, I think about what we're, you know, some of you are watching, I know, from not in the United States, but here in the United States, you know, we're still kind of in the throes of this election. What's the final outcome going to be? And, and, you know, I'm sure if you ask any one of us, all of us have a, a, a preference of, of how this decision is going to go. Uh, it may not go the way, the way we want it to go. It may not go that way. And it may be like, man, what is going on? You know, I'm not that concerned about it. I mean, I, I have it up, an opinion. I'm praying in a, a certain direction. But you know what? Whichever way it goes, man, it's, it's not like God's like, oh, man, I wasn't planning on that. You know, I wasn't planning on Georgia to do this. You know, it's all part of God's plan. And he's going to allow, for whatever reason, and I may not understand the reason, but he's going to allow whoever he wants to be the President of the United States and, and, again, the Senate and all that stuff. So I don't get too concerned because, again, God has a plan and a purpose even for what's happening in our, in our country right now. So don't fret. <laughs> all right, let's continue on here. Verse uh, 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abram, or Abram and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was gathered. For, the wilderness, for in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh 
in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Man, you know, Moses... You just as you go through it, you read, you know, you follow his life in the book of Exodus and stuff. You can just see God's doing a work in Moses. You know, uh, he wanted to be a deliverer for the children of Israel, and he kind of did it in his own strength with his own fire, so to speak, and it didn't work. He got burnt out, ended up in the wilderness for 40 years, the back end of, of Midian. Um, learning humility, becoming a shepherd. But even during all that time, God was doing a work preparing him for leading some really stubborn sheep, the children of Israel. And so it was all preparation and none of it was wasted time. Sometimes we think we get into places where it's like, Lord, what are you doing in my life? Nothing's wasted in God's economy. Nothing's wasted. Anyways, you just see a transformation in Moses and here at the end of his life, again, he's got all this wisdom, this age, and he just doesn't presume in an answer when, when the daughters of Zelophehad had come to him. He's like, man, I don't know. Let me go ask the Lord, find out what he says. Well, here, the Lord God is telling him, you know, you're not going to go into the promised land. And I could just imagine, you know, Moses is a father. He could say, well, what about my sons? You know, what, what about my inheritance? You know, Lord, what are you going to do? He doesn't even ask the Lord about that. What's his concern? His concern is not for himself. It's not for his sons. His concern is for the children of Israel. I love that. Moses has a shepherd's heart, and he doesn't want to be the be, see the children of Israel be a sheep having no shepherd. That's the heart of a shepherd right there. So what's Moses' request? What's in it for me? What are my children going to get? No, it's, Lord, we need a leader. If I can't lead them, somebody else has to lead them. Lord, choose a leader who will go out before them and go in before them. In other words, someone who sets an example for the children of Israel. Someone who commands them in battle and brings them back in peace. Someone who can lead them and someone with a shepherd's heart. And what's God's answer? Verse 18. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun with uh, take Joshua the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, and all that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation of and all, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So what's God's answer? Moses is like, we need a leader. God says, take Joshua and lay your hands on him. Inaugurate him in the sight of the people. What was his qualification? He's got potential. He's got leadership potential. I've seen him lead in this little way. You know, he's, he's going to be a good leader. What's the qualification? Man, he's filled with the Spirit of God. That's all it is. He's just filled with the Spirit. That should be the first and foremost qualification for any leader. Why do I say that? 
First of all, if he's filled with the Spirit, he's going to have the heart of the great shepherd. He's going to have the heart of the Lord. He's also going to discern God's will. And based on God's will, he's going to lead the people based on what God has spoken to him. And he'll be an example to the people. And as we go through the book of Joshua, that's exactly what Joshua did. Joshua would hear from the Lord and he would obey and he would lead the children of Israel. And Joshua had a shepherd's heart. And Joshua was an example you know, at one point he says, you know, you can choose who you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, man, I'm serving the Lord. What, an, what a beautiful example. That's Joshua. You know, what I find is interesting here is Moses, of course, he's known as the great lawgiver. And the great lawgiver, the heart that he had for the people, the, the great man that Moses was, he could only take the people so far. The law can only take people so far. It was Joshua had, who had to take him the rest of the way. Joshua, you probably know this, maybe you don't, but that's the Hebrew name for Jesus. Joshua's a picture of Jesus. We'll be, when we get into the book of Joshua, we'll be looking at that in, in depth. But Joshua's Hebrew for Jesus. And so the law couldn't take the children of Israel all the way in Jesus, or Joshua has to, or can, is the only one that can. Galatians 3.24 Paul says this, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus is the great shepherd. 1 Peter 2.25, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus says this in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And then in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We see a beautiful picture. Again, Joshua is a picture of Jesus Christ. Um, well, I'm going to have the worship team go ahead and come up here. Let's go just respond to the Lord here in prayer while they're coming up. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the, uh, the warnings we see in the different people, Lord, and, and also, Lord, the, the examples, Lord, that we are to follow. Lord, um, you just think of Caleb and Joshua. Lord, they just simply trusted you. That's, they just simply took you at your word and obeyed. And yet, look at the reward. They were able to enter into the promised land. They were the only ones in their generation that could. And Lord, I pray that we would be the Joshua and Caleb generation right now. Lord, that we would hear your word, we'd respond to your word, and we'd obey it. Lord, that we just simply trust you. We would take you at your word. Lord, I pray that for each one of us. Lord, I thank you that it's not by following the law that we get into a closer relationship with you. It's simply because of following Jesus. And we thank you that you have sent your son, Lord God, to die on the cross for us, to be pierced through for our sin. Lord, yet one act of obedience brought salvation to us here who have put our trust in you. So we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your gift, Lord. And this morning, Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that your spirit has spoken to us. Lord, I pray that we would respond in obedience and that, Lord, as we obey your word, it would produce fruit in our lives. So we thank you and we bless you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.